When I say the word revival, what are the images and thoughts that come to mind with the word revival? I grew up in a little Southern Baptist church, and so we scheduled revivals. Like we had a week where we scheduled a revival, and we got brought in a guest preacher, and he preached twice as long when I was like eight years old. This is what I remember. Twice as long as the normal pastor, and we worshiped for longer, and we, I observed adults coming forward and confessing sin, and it was a week long, so it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Schedule revival. Maybe you have other thoughts. Maybe your thoughts on revival may be more negative than that. Maybe it's just, man, it's just people getting really emotional and acting kind of crazy. Maybe you think historically about revivals, the 17th century Great Awakening that happened in our country and the revival that happened there. Perhaps you think before that and the Reformation, where God's Word was clear to God's people and there was change. Perhaps you even think biblically about some revivals, if you will, that happened in the Word of God. Perhaps you think of the Old Testament where even a reluctant, a reluctant Jonah went to Nineveh and Nineveh experienced revival. Perhaps you think of Pentecost in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit, Jesus has gone to heaven and the Holy Spirit descends and the church begins and there is revival that breaks out. Perhaps earlier in the year you were on social media wondering if the thing that happened in Asbury College was a real revival. Plenty of people had a lot to say about the two 16 days, what happened in Asbury College where 15,000 people a day came to pray and confess and worship. What is revival? How do I know if revival is real? And maybe better yet, how do I know when revival is beginning, not broadly, but in my own heart? What is revival? Andrew Murray said revival is this. It's a, he said it's making alive again those who have been alive but have fallen into this cold, spiritual, dead state. They are Christians and they have life, but they need reviving to bring back to them their first love and healthy growth for them as a Christian. Plainly stated, simply stated, Revival is to live again. Anybody need that? Anybody need to live again spiritually? Maybe you look at your spiritual life and you're just living and thinking in the past because way back in college, man, I was spiritually alive and things were happening. And now that you have a mortgage and an SUV and three kids, you're like, well, that doesn't really happen anymore because I don't have time for that. But you long for that. If you're a believer in Jesus, you long for God to work change in your life, I would assume, I would hope. We long for God to work revival in our midst. But what does that look like? What are the elements that, that happen when God is doing work in your life? And if you knew, would you really be willing to go down that road? Or maybe we're just really comfortable where we're at. Maybe we won't want to do the hard work a reviving and revival that God wants to wrought in our lives. So do you want to live again, C3? Do you look back on your spiritual life? Or maybe God is doing a work in your life right now and you are in a place of celebration. You're in a place where you're excited about the Lord and what he's teaching you in his word and what he's revealing to you about your sin that you're turning from and turning to him. And that's a beautiful Thing. I want to show you what genuine revival looks like. It happened in Nehemiah's day just like it can happen in our day. 
but it starts in our own hearts. So look with me at Nehemiah chapter 9 in your Bibles. You got a Bible with you? There's one close to you. Nehemiah chapter 9. See, we've already seen, as you turn there, we've already seen um, God's physical work on a wall restored. The wall of Jerusalem is already restored, so there's security within the walls of Jerusalem for people to come back from effectively, even while they're working on it, living in the burbs to come back and live there and worship God in His temple that they had already rebuilt through Ezra when he came back. And so we've already seen this physical work, but now what you're seeing is the spiritual work of spiritual renewal in God's people, which is a lot deeper and a lot harder, isn't it? I mean, I can go on a mission trip and build a building. I can go do physical things. I can go serve. But what is God doing inside? Is He renewing? Is He reviving in? Side. And so this is what we've seen last week. You saw Chris preaching um, on Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah brings Ezra in and they open the Word of God. And what do you see? You see the people of God giving attention to the Word of God. You see their hearts pricked. They're heart sick because of their sin, but something interesting happens. There's something on the calendar that they can't avoid. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles remembers the wandering in the wilderness, and so they're not supposed to at that time be, amen, that's right. At that time, they're not supposed to be weeping and mourning over their sin. They're supposed to be celebrating the work of God. So there's a pause, right? There's a pause in what's happening. You ever come to church? I hope you have. You ever come to church and you're convicted about something, and then you leave and you go to the potluck? Or you got a baseball game that afternoon? And you forget all about it until you come back the next Sunday. You're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. That's real conviction, I believe. But I, the question is, do these people come back? Do they come back to the conviction of the Holy Spirit opened up by the Word of God, that the Word is doing work? Are they going to come back to it? Open with me to the opening words of Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. You're going to see really three. There's more than that. Today, you're going to see three. You're going to see some more next week. But three Telltale signs of revival breaking out amongst God's people. And I think there, it's true of a broad revival that when we talk about revival, but I also think it's true in your heart, in my heart. What are the elements that God uses to produce revival? Nehemiah chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and we're going to work our way through Nehemiah 9. Now on the 24th of day, this is a couple days after the Feast of Booths, so a couple days has happened. And the month, the people of Israel were assembled. Remember the 40 plus thousand people. What were they doing? What did they begin to do again? They were fasting and in sackcloth and earth, that's ashes on their head. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and did what? Here we go. They confessed. They continued their sins. They confessed their sins, note that, and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Y'all think I preach long. A quarter of the day, that's, I think it's during the daytime, so it's three hours, a three-hour sermon where they're reading from the word of God. And then it says, for the next quarter of the day, three more hours, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord. Some of you think we, we do too many worship songs. They worshiped the Lord for three hours. What do you th- how do you feel about that, Luke? Let's do it. 
Verse 4, on the stairs of the Levites. So these are Levites. These are leaders in the temple of God. They're spiritual leaders. Like the pastors stood Joshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebabai, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. They're doing this publicly. They're not embarrassed by it. They're doing it publicly. They're confessing their sin. They're worshiping. So here's the thing. The conviction and the confession hasn't gone away since the feast of booze, has it? It continues. And look at this. When you think about fasting, we've talked about fasting a little bit this year. We've talked about the spiritual discipline of fasting. It's not necessarily like the, the intermittent fasting we talk about to get a little bit off the middle, right? It's fasting before the Lord. So when you feel hunger, you think of the Lord and you pray to the Lord because He's the bread of life. So it's a spiritual discipline, relying on the Lord. And then it says that they are in sackcloth. I don't think this is vogue right now, but anybody up for wearing a really heavy, in Magnolia, Texas, and it's still like 75, a really heavy black goatskin thing on you? Is that in vogue? These, have you ever felt of a goat? Maybe you've gone to the petting zoo and felt the goat. It's not real soft. It's coarse. Heavy, black coat. What's going on here? And then it says there's, they put earth on them. This is ash. You see this all the way through the Old Testament. You're like, what in the world's going on here? Ash. You know where they get the ash? From the burning that happens at the city dump. Anybody want to put junk from the city dump that's been burned on your head? Here's what's going on. It's an outward sign for them of their heart sickness internally of the junk that's going on internally that they're getting out over the course of six hours. That's what's going on. And then it says that they separate themselves. Do you remember when they come back into Jerusalem a few weeks ago? And what what does Nehemiah do? He orders them in the sense of like a census. He looks back at a sentence because these are all the Jews coming back to live in the city. And so what he wants, he's want, he wants people that are faithful. He wants people that are pursuing holiness. And so they order themselves, here's the problem. The problem that they've had is that they've intermarried with foreign wives. The problem they've had, as we've seen, is they've bound themselves even financially to people on the outside. And so what he's doing is saying, the people of God have got to pursue holiness, and that's what they're doing as they come in and settle inside the city. They separate themselves. The idea of sanctification is just that, separating, living, holy. And then it says, they stood and confessed. Note note this, look at it. Does it say they stood and confessed their forefathers' sins? It says they stood and confessed their own sins and the pattern of sins that their forefathers has had before them. There's no blame shifting. We do really well at blame shifting, don't we? It's it's all my mom and dad. It's all my family. It's not me. No, they owned it 100%. Here's the first thought today. The first sign of real revival in your heart and in mine and the people of God here is that God's Word, God's Word brings ongoing conviction and confession of sin to the surface. 
Not just for me to talk to God about, but me to share with others. Confession is verbally saying what's going on in your life to others. In 2007, I went on a mission trip as a youth pastor to Russia. I took 12, imagine this today, it doesn't work. I took 12 high school students to Russia. I mean, that's crazy to even think about. Why would 12 parents let me take, anyway, 12. And we went to the eastern side, like St. Petersburg area, and we got to interact with other believers. I don't even know how many mission trips I took as a youth guy or after. Got to be 20, 25 plus in 10 years of doing that and more. And it was the most unique mission trip I'd ever been on, not just because of where we were, which was unique, but because what happened. Usually on mission trips, we would get the kids and we would share the gospel, we'd build stuff, we would learn more. This was a different kind of trip. We actually went to the Baltic Sea. Baltic Sea, where there's like three hours of sunlight because of the lights, so we didn't sleep a whole lot. But I'm telling you guys, these guys, they had what they called an open-air retreat that they had been doing since like 1970, this church that we were connected to. And they went to the Baltic Sea to open God's Word all day from 1970 on. Why? Living in communist Russia. You couldn't open the Word of God freely. And so they went to the Baltic Sea where there's grizzly bears, I found out after. All these blueberries everywhere. And they camped. They made tents on the Baltic Sea for a week. And let me tell you, all day and half the night, all of us Americans, including me, the pastor, there's some translation issues here, but all day they opened the Word of God. And I'm talking about adults, but mostly students, mostly kids that are our kids' ages. And they're opening the Word and they're learning and understanding and growing and they're confessing their sin at night. It never ended. It was light all day. And so some of our kids are like, hey, when are we going to get a break? Aren't we going to build something? We're going to share the gospel, which we did at the other part of the trip. But all of these kids, and when I talk to them today, and I have, they will never forget that people across the globe who are hungry for the word of God, that they were hungry to worship God, they were hungry to confess their sins, they were hungry for revival. That taught our students. That taught me more than anything else on that trip. Let me ask you, are you hungry for the Word of God? I know you got 30, 40 Bibles at home. Are you hungry for the Word of God? Are you heart sick because of the sin that the Word of God reveals that you can't shake? Let me say it this way. If the Word of God isn't saturating your mind and your heart, confession will unlikely come out of your lips. What do you need to do to immerse yourself in God's Word? And let me ask you a harder question. When's the last time that you confessed something and you took 100% responsibility for that confession? Not 80-20. Well, I'm this way. I'm an angry person and, and the reason I'm angry is because my dad was angry. The reason I'm really passive is because my, my mom is really passive. But I'm wrong. But it's really mom and dad's fault. 
I'm not saying there aren't issues with mom and dad. Or marriage, how about this one? If you wouldn't have done X, then I wouldn't do Y. I know that never happens in your home. I know, I'm, I know that doesn't happen in our home. Right? She just smiling over there. When's the last time you took 100%? Well, you just don't understand. You've never been through what I've been through, so you just don't understand. And that may be true. But what we often do is we want other people to accept us where we are. We want God to accept us where we are. We'd rather blame shift and that inner defense lawyer rises up in us rather than saying, it's me. Man, until I'm convinced, and I'm often not, until I'm convinced that I'm my biggest problem, not my spouse, not my kids, not my work, not anything else, until I'm convinced that I'm my biggest problem, confession and repentance, which is the turning from my way to God's way, rarely will happen. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that before God, you are your biggest problem, not your spouse, not your kids, not your work, boss, not your circumstances, not the economy? Are you convinced? Challenging. Here's the problem. Anybody ever driven a stick shift car? You're like, if you're like 40 or under, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. A stick shift car. Okay, so if you have an automatic and you've never driven a stick shift car, you can feel this if you're like in an automatic vehicle in Colorado and you're driving up a mountain and it won't shift gears. But if you've had a stick shift vehicle ever before, shifting of the gears. I had an Isuzu pickup truck when I was growing up. It had mud flaps on it. It was like the the, the extra vehicle on the ranch, and that's what I drove. And we were in the hills of the hill country. And man, I had to learn how to drive a stick shift, and I ground some gears, man. My dad will tell you, I messed the truck up a little bit, going up and down those hills and learning how to use my left foot on a clutch. Imagine that. But let me tell you, without confession and without repentance, it's like being stuck in like third gear. Life as a Christian is like being stuck in third gear. The RPMs are up. You can't move as fast as you ought to move You're grinding the gears. But the reality is this. If you're born again and Christ has changed you, it's like having, if you're repentant, it's beautiful. If you're like repentant and confessional and we ebb and flow in this, you're functionally driving a stick stick shift Lamborghini. That's what we've got. Because God frees us from our own sin. So if you can't remember Y'all, if you can't remember the last time that you took 100%, blame for something, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for your family and the people around you that are walking on eggshells all the time? You see, revival starts with God's word, and it, word convicting our hearts, and it moves to confession and repentance. Aren't you glad you came today? A turning from one way to the other. It's beautiful. It's freeing. Here's the problem in the air that we breathe, though. I mean, it's hard enough as believers to come to church and and learn the Word and go, "Ah, I don't know if I want to go there. We do that. I do that. I preach that. And then it's like, hey, are you going to do what you tell everybody else to do? But we live in a culture that the air this culture 
that you breathe in this culture is not repentance and confession. It's acceptance, isn't it? It's acceptance no matter what. However somebody feels or whatever that they think they are, it's acceptance. It's safe spaces. And I'm not saying acceptance is always wrong. I'm just saying we live in a culture that says don't even go there. Don't even get anywhere near that. You've got to accept me exactly the way I am. There's no growth in that, y'all. Do you know that? There's no growth in that. When you're constantly telling people, hey, you've got to change, not me. You've got to accept me exactly the way I am. That's not Christ's way. Christ's way is take up your cross and follow me. Fight the good fight. Fight your sin. Confession, repentance. It's countercultural, is it not? First sign of genuine revival is embracing the Word of God that brings ongoing conviction and confession to the surface. But keep looking here. If you're looking at the text, you're going, man, you're only like four verses in, and we got 5 through 38. Where are you going with this? Verse 5 through 37. Here's your second thought. This is really the second piece of revival in your heart. Revival as a people. A repentant heart leads us to worship. It leads us to worship our faithful and merciful God. From verses 5 through 37, here's what the Levites do. They worship God. They write it down like a liturgy. If you like liturgy, you'd love this. Luke, check this out. Worship guys love this. There's a liturgy that they write out. And it looks like it's only part of it because they're doing this for three hours. But it's the history of Israel back from Nehemiah back. And you know what it does from verses 5 through 15 or so? If you just glance at it, got your Bible in front of you right now. Verses 5 through 15 recall and recount God's past faithfulness to his people. It recalls the creation account where God creates and fills the earth, his power and his wonder. And it moves from creation, if you look at it, it moves from creation to Abraham, where he comes to Abram out of the earth of the Chaldees. This guy's an idol worshiper, y'all. And it says, here's what God did. He called him out. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God was with him, blessed him, gave him land, seed, and blessing. He called him out. You see God's faithfulness to his people. And then you see Egypt, where God's people need delivering from Pharaoh and slavery. And it shows at every point, all the plagues, where God says, I'm greater than your little G God in every single one of those plagues. And he's showing not just Israel, but he's showing the nation Egypt that he is greater, that Yahweh is greater than the God Ra and all the other gods that are in focus in those plagues. And then he delivers his people and they're leaving Egypt. And the Egyptians are behind him. And he parts the Red Sea. And he's faithful in power to deliver his people. And then what happens? And so he just goes through the chronology. And then they're Get trying to get to Mount Sinai, and there's a cloud by day and fire by night. God is leading them. And they get to Sinai, and it gives them the law, and it gives them the Sabbath. So verses 5 through 15, if you just glance at it, it's all God's work in his people's lives. He's faithful. He shows up. He provides. He cares. What you see is the word over and over again, and you, or and God. 
God led, God chose, God made. All the way through it, but look at verse 16. What does it say? First two words. But they. From verse 16 all the way to verse 31. You see how sorry these people are. <laughs> you see, but they. In view of God's faithfulness, they were unfaithful. All the way through. So it, it goes through the golden calf. So it progresses in the history of Israel. He goes through the golden calf and what they do there, they're blaspheming God. It goes through the part where the, the nation Israel is supposed to take the land and they shrink back because the giants in the land and they're fearful and they don't and then what do they do? They wander in the wilderness and yet even there God provides for them and cares for them and gives them manna but what do they do? They're stiff-necked. They complain. They grumble. They turn to their own ways again and again and again. And so mostly from verse 16 through 31, what you see is people turning to their own ways, which only result in more problems. And yet what the text is amazing, verse 17 and verse 31, if you want to highlight any of that big text, highlight those verses. In spite of that, the text says that God was faithful, that God was gracious, that God was merciful, and that he did not forsake them in spite of their sin and their failure. And then you get to verse 32, and it's a present reality. And as great as it is that they're in Jerusalem, and as great as it is that the wall is up and they can worship, guess what? They're still under Persia's thumb. And so when you look at verse 36, while they're back in the land, they are still enslaved. That's what sin does. I want you to think about that as a believer in Jesus. When you look at this recalling of God's faithfulness amidst God's people's continual failure, do you look at this text and go, I can't believe they just don't obey God. It would have been so much better for them. Or do you look at this text and do you see you? Do you see the pattern, maybe even before you knew Jesus in your life, where there's this pattern of sin and consequence over and over and over. And God is gracious to you, but that pattern continues. Do you look at this even in your Christian life and go, man, I need the Lord. I need his mercy. I need his grace. I need his abounding steadfast love in my life today because I'm just like the Israelites, the people of God. Where are you at? See, real revival looks like repentant hearts worshiping God because he's faithful and he's merciful still, right? Can you, C3, can you recall God's hand in your life? What's the history that you would write of God's faithfulness? See, when I'm stuck in a place where I'm pursuing my own way, I can't see through the clouds how God has been faithful. When I'm complaining and grumbling, it's usually because I'm not repentant. I'm not confessing. But when the time that I can see what God is doing in my life is when I realize how great and awesome He is in view of my sin, that He's forgiving and merciful, I tend to see God a little better in that place. How about you? Can you recall it? See, repentance helps us see God for who He is. 
and not blame all of our troubles on what he's brought upon us. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we continue in our trespasses and sin, but he is merciful. But God, because of his great mercy toward us, has given us Christ and made us alive. That's revival. He's made us alive. Perhaps a challenge for you this week. Yes, it's an assignment, okay? Thanksgiving's coming, right? Thursday. Thanksgiving feast, Thursday. If you need an action point, here it is. How about take today, maybe this afternoon, or maybe dinner table even with your kids, and you write your history. Write your history of how God has been faithful to you. Write it out. And maybe even some of in spite of you. And then get to the Thanksgiving table and eat lunch and then recall the faithfulness and the mercy of God this week in a season that we're called to be thankful. How's that? The Word of God leads us to confession. It leads us to worship. One more element of revival, though, that I see in this text. And really, all we've done really so far is they've listened to the Word, right? And they've recalled with their mouths what God has done. They've confessed. But where's the action? Is there any action that God calls us to in revival? Look at it here in verse 38. Verse 38 says this, because of all of this, because everything we've just talked about, we make or cut a firm covenant in writing. So it's not just verbal, it's written down. And they write it on a sealed document for all to see. The names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. See, the third aspect of revival in our lives is a renewed commitment. A renewed commitment to walk in God's ways. That's the sign of real change. Are you willing to do anything about it? Are we just going to walk out of here on a Sunday morning and be convicted and not do anything with it? A real written commitment. Next week, you say, well, well, they're just writing a commitment down, but what is it? Next week, we'll get to that. We'll get to see the skin on this renewed commitment. This, this renewed commitment to obey, you're going to see it next week in chapter 10, what it actually looked like, with skin on it, like real life. How does real life change with a renewed commitment to the Lord in obedience? I said earlier, I, I told you about the little, you know, scheduled baptism, so we're, I'm, I'm Baptist, I grew up Baptist, so I can bash on them a little bit. The other thing that happened in my church when I was a kid is that every once in a while you would see somebody at the end of the service, right? You got the, you got the altar to call. Every once in a while you see somebody come down, I'm like, man, and I'm eight or ten, I'm like, they're already a Christian, what are they doing? And they're coming down and they're saying, and they come forward and they say, I'm going to rededicate my life to the Lord because my life is looking like this. I'm turning to my own way and I want to turn back to that. And maybe we make fun of that, especially if it's the person that continues to come back every week, but here's the reality, some of us need that. Maybe it doesn't look like that. Maybe we don't have an altar call. We don't have an altar call here. But maybe you need to rededicate your life to the Lord. Maybe you look back, man, it's been 10 years since I actually walked with the Lord, that I opened my Bible, that I confessed to any sin, that I cared about walking with Jesus. Maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day that you say, enough. Maybe today is the 
that you make a renewed commitment and you write it down and say, look, I've been walking this way, my own way. I came into Christ 20 years ago, and I've been walking my own way. And whether that happened kind of drip by drip or things happened in my life, maybe you need that. Maybe you need to say today. I'm recommitting myself to the Lord and walking in His ways. And I need a church and I need people to walk with me. Maybe you need this. Maybe this afternoon, in addition, up until Thanksgiving, where you're writing out a recalling of God's story in your life, in your life, in your life. Maybe you're also writing down, in what ways am I going to start afresh today walking in obedience rather than disobedience, rather than taking half measures in my spiritual walk with the Lord, I'm just going to be all in. Maybe that's what we need for revival to really happen in our hearts, to push away maybe some apathy that has just been building up and calcifying in our lives for a really long time. Time. Maybe we need to break up, as the Word of God says, the fallow ground and ask God to work in our lives. You know, there's something in this text. When I look at real revival, real revival revolves the Word of God. You can't do it without the Word of God. Double-edged sword, penetrating, soul and spirit. It doesn't happen until you can get downwind of your own stuff and own it for what it is. It doesn't happen without recognizing the faithfulness of God amidst your own sin and your unfaithfulness. It doesn't happen without committing yourself to the Lord. There's one thing, and this is a long chapter, but there's one thing this week that I just can't get over about this text when I read it. From that long prayer. It's the longest prayer in the Old Testament. From verse 5 to 37. I can't get past the fact. That the people of God continued. To walk away from God. And turn the other way. And yet God did not forsake them. That he was abounding and steadfast love for them. That he didn't shame them. But he continued to love them. In spite of them. It wrecked me this week. Does that gospel truth wreck you? Does it wreck you to know that God is a God who forgives? God is a God abounding in love no matter if you walk away or not, that you can come back again and again and again. 2021, COVID, middle of COVID, singer-songwriter Morgan Wallen yeah, I'm going there. 2021, February 2021, there's a, a video that surfaced of Morgan Wallen, which many of us love, his songs, and it was him drunk. And he was hanging out with his buddies, and he's walking to his house, and he said some very derogatory words, racially derogatory words to his friends, completely drunk. TMC posted it. Got out, record label, dropped him, everybody was canceling him, right? It's pretty awful stuff. Within the next six months or so, three of his buddies who were songwriters wrote a song kind of about him, 
about his life, and they, and they handed it to him. And in 2022, Good Friday, 2022, he released the song, Don't Think Jesus. Maybe you've heard it. Kind of chronicles his life a little bit, growing up effectively in a Christian community, talks about his sinful rebellion, his partying. The words go like this. Boy gets a guitar, learns how to play about whiskey and women and getting stoned. He got all three at the first show. It's hard to read this without singing it, but you don't want to hear me sing. (laughs) He got all three at the first show he played. Hometown said, I don't think Jesus done it that way. So he felt guilt because of his sin. Boy moves to city, lives fast and goes hard, starts chasing the devil in honky-tonk bars ignoring the voices in his own head that say, I don't think Jesus done it that way. So he knows his guilt. He knows his sin. And then he stops in the song and he basically reflects, and maybe you've done this before in your own life, where you're evaluating your sin and your shame before God and you put it on God and basically say, he could never do anything with me. I'm a wretch. I'm sure the people of Israel felt that way all the time reading this. And the punchline of the song, the great theologian Morgan Wallen, which I don't know where he stands with the Lord at all, but this is right. This is gospel truth. It says this, if I was him, meaning God, if I was God, I'd say to hell with you. Ain't no helping you. Find someone else to give heaven to. I'm telling you, I'd shame me. I'd blame me. I'd make me pay for my mistakes. But I don't think Jesus done it that way. Aren't you glad? That's the truth of the gospel. That's the truth that the people of God were experiencing in the Old Testament here in Nehemiah chapter 9. They experienced. Couldn't imagine being there when they're walking through that. In Nehemiah 9.17, for example, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, anger, abounding in love. You're a God that doesn't forsake me in spite of me. Have you experienced the grace of God In that way. Or maybe to get some New Testament perspective. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead at our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, not by works, By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's the gift of God so that no man can boast. C3. Do you know that truth? Of the grace of God? Or do you just look at this passage and said they should have just cleaned their life up? How's that working out for you? The only thing that cleaning your life up, what you realize real fast about cleaning your life up or trying to do better, is the only place that leaves you is in shame because it don't work. Not with a holy God. See, the grace of God is what revives you and changes you. And it's also, in sanctification, how we walk. We walk in the grace, the lavish grace of God. 
So your takeaway today is how we began. Do you want revival in your life? Here's the point. Live again. Live again by the grace of God. Perhaps for you, if you don't yet know Jesus this morning, living again means that you are currently dead in your trespasses and sins. And you don't have any spiritual life. And yet Christ died on a cross for you and offers you forgiveness. Will you confess and repent of your sin and turn to Christ and believe upon what he's done by his grace for you? That's what it means for you to live again. And maybe you've already made that decision long ago. And you know without a shadow of the doubt that you have assurance of pardon, assurance of salvation, but maybe you've wandered away. Maybe you need to live again, to take the place that you're at in that cold, dark place where there's no real spiritual life to feel or to see in your own life and say, enough, and to come to the Word of God and immerse yourself in it and own 100% of what you need to own to whoever you need to own it and to walk in repentance and faith and give God worship and credit and his due that he is faithful even when you are not, and to commit to walk in obedience, to walk in his way, not your way. And the truth is, that takes the grace of God every day in your life. Live again. Let me pray.